to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bring your faith into public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me from her home studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We hope that you are having a very blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder Program right here on your favorite Catholic radio station each week at this same time. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org podcast. You can also find the Bridge Builder on your favorite podcast app. In today's episodes, we're talking about Christopher Columbus, the expansion of Christendom to the New World, controversy over monuments, and how history is memorialized. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about helping bring calm to conversations about politics. And stick around for the bricklayer segment to find out what you can do to inform your vote ahead of the election. We are blessed to be joined on the line by Dr. Robert Royal. He is founder and president of the Faith and Reason Institute in Washington, D.C., and editor-in-chief of the very important and fine website, The Catholic Thing. Dr. Royal is the author of many books, including 1492 and All That, which discusses the journey and life of Christopher Columbus from a political and unbiased approach. He also wrote an article this summer for The Catholic Thing entitled Seattle, Columbus, and Historical Fictions, which deals with some of the controversy around monuments and the toppling of those monuments. Welcome to the program, Dr. Royal. It's good to have you on The Bridge Builder. Jason, it's great to be with you. Your book originally came out in the early 90s, 1492 and all that. What got you interested in focusing on this topic and compelled you to write the original book, which is now going to be set for re-release in an updated and expanded version? Well, I was asked by the magazine First Things, another very important publication, to do a review of a book um, called The Conquest of Paradise. Uh, this was for the 19, you know, 1992 was the 500th anniversary of 1492, of course, and there was, even back then, there was a great deal of controversy about what Columbus did, what it meant, did he really discover anybody, did they need to be discovered? And so after I reviewed that book, several people said to me, look, you've got to write a a book about this, because you're the only person who can do this. I knew a fair amount about the European side, and I knew that that was wrong. And as I read more and more into the very fascinating history of Native Americans, and then what, of course, has happened in the last 500 years, I just felt that it was important to try to set this record straight a bit, because as we see right now, um, the, the treatment of these subjects has become extremely radicalized, and we really need to be fair as we would to people living right now, we need to try to be fair to people who have lived before us, lived in very different times, had very different mentalities. And I think I succeeded fairly well in trying to, to in, in doing that in the initial volume. It seems that movies such as Dances with Wolves, Avatar, Disney's Pocahontas have shaped people's imaginations and have created a mythical pre-Columbian world. What role has popular culture played in shaping people's attitudes toward Columbus, colonial expansion, the coming of Europeans to the New World? Well, I think you have that exactly right. It's a somewhat sentimentalized and idealized portrait. And by the way, I want to say again, the actual histories of Native peoples are very interesting. It's, it's worth reading into that and finding out about them. They, they built tremendous things. They had, they had huge empires. They, they had beautiful cultures. But what I think has happened, instead of really looking at the, the, the different 
ethnicities or nations that were involved is we in the West, we in the developed West, the worries we have, say, about the environment or about our relations with one another, we tended to project an ideal image of something we would like ourselves to be onto Native peoples who were just like us. They were normal human beings who had you know, good and bad mixed into their personal lives, their political lives, their cultures, the way they treated nature. And really, that is an unfair thing to do to another culture, because actually, once you begin to look into them, you see that it's not a paradise. And I think lots of people become disillusioned at that point. And we shouldn't really. We are all human beings together with glorious things about us and inglorious things about us. So the more we know and we actually know about these truths, I think the less that these myths, which unfortunately have been, you're right, propagated by our popular culture, which is trying to give us an image of something other than ourselves, that myth has not served us well. It's not served the, the people it, it treats well, and it doesn't. Re- it's not really fair to the fact that there is both good and, and great glories in our Western tradition as well. Dr. Royal, if we ponder for a moment the prevalence of the figure of Columbus in our country, not only just in, in our country, but also in this hemisphere. Our capital is named after him, the District of Columbia. We have many cities named Columbia, Columbus. There are statues of him everywhere. There was one at our state capital here in Minnesota until recently. He's in a storage locker now. What changed? I mean, certainly there were hundreds of books and things written about Columbus since his fateful journey to this hemisphere. Uh, People certainly weren't ignorant of the historical record. There was all kinds of evidence available. Were people just morally obtuse to the alleged sins of Columbus and his men? Or, you know, what what has changed between the time when all these monuments were put up and these places were named and our perspective on him now, whereas we approach another Columbus Day, it's being changed to, for example, Indigenous Peoples Day. What has changed around the figure of Columbus? Do we know more about him, or is it just a different type of consciousness and perspective that we have today? What's going on there? Well, there were myths about Columbus, and my book deals with this. I, you know, the idea that Columbus overcame medieval superstition, and he knew that there, there was a place he could sail to. He was wrong, actually, about the distances, or maybe he deliberately tinted the, the truth, because, look, people knew that the world was round going back to antiquity. The ancient Greeks knew this already. In the entire Middle Ages, if you read Dante's Divine Comedy, the, the world is obviously a ball. That, that was a myth that he proved the Earth was round. It was also a myth that he left behind this, you know, this dark medieval superstition. He was extremely religious and medieval in, in, in his own way. It was a myth that Columbus was uh, kind of the precursor of the Protestant Reformation, or the original capitalist, original pioneer. And so all that stuff, as, as that began to be uh, reduced, that mythology started to be changed when we knew a little bit more historically. We actually went over to the opposite extreme. And I think we see this not only with him, but you've also seen that now even figures like Jefferson and Washington, because and they were slave owners, but figures like that coming under extreme criticism to the point that people are talking about renaming the Jefferson Monument here in Washington. People in the past, like us, I say this again, were human beings with mixtures of good and bad. And I think that partly what's happened is as Christianity and a religious view has receded, we don't have this sense that everyone is a sinner, that everyone is imperfect any longer. And instead, we have this belief that the generation now alive has a purer view of morality than people in the past. Well, maybe we do and maybe we don't. We have killed 60 million babies in the womb 
here in the United States. And someday there's going to be a reckoning when people look back at that as well, for example. But when we look back at these other figures, we shouldn't expect them to be perfect. But we honor them for the good things that they did. In the case of Jefferson and Washington, they set in motion this wonderful country that we all live in. In the case of Columbus, I'd like to say that he actually was the person that forged the world. The fact that people actually knew that they existed in one interconnected world began in 1492. It didn't. That sensibility did not exist prior to him. So what I say is I put it the other way around. Yes, there has been this change in mentality that we now blame any perceived weakness or sinfulness or, or immorality in the past. And it's fine to look at that. But if we're going to claim that every evil that has now existed in the new world is directly traceable back to Columbus, which I, I think is an absurd proposition to begin with, but all right, if you want to claim that, are we going to allow that he set in motion some things that are good, too, like our freedoms? like our respect for individual human beings, which comes only out of our Christian background. There's no other culture that thinks that every human being uh, is a child of God and has human dignity. It's Christianity and Christianity alone that did that, and it's Christianity that ended slavery in the developed world. It was the Spaniards, the Spanish theologians and philosophers who began to reflect on this as soon as Columbus arrived, and it was later the Quakers and the Methodists, the British Quakers and Methodists, who actually physically shut down the Atlantic slave trade. Slavery still exists in the modern world. There are 40 million slaves, it's estimated, in the modern world in various places. But the sense that we have that slavery is wrong and that all people deserve respect, that comes from Christianity. And Columbus was one of the people that had helped spread that mentality to the entire world. Are these debates about monuments then fundamentally they're symbolic of a deeper clash of worldviews? Like, do you ultimately believe that Western civilization on par, certainly it's full of sins and errors, but at the same time, it brings benefits to the world and, and brought a benefit to the new world as opposed to the the conquest of paradise worldview that it was really it, it corrupted a pristine state of nature is are fundamentally these really clashes of worldviews at the end of the day and do we need to think about them in those terms well yeah and and as i said earlier the, the part of the problem is since we don't really look at native peoples as they actually were and we know there was you know there was fighting among native tribes you know, I take it in, in my, my new version of the book, I take the example of the controversy that, that existed about Mount Rushmore just this past uh, July 4th when President Trump visited there. And it's true that the American, the U.S. Army captured Mount Rushmore from a, an indigenous group, but the indigenous group was the Lakota Sioux, who had captured it from an, another Indian tribe, who had captured it earlier from another Indian tribe. So, you know, the same kinds of things that we find troubling in ourselves, the way that we can fight with one another, the, the way we can disrespect one another, those exist in other cultures because they are human beings just like us. I mean, I know I keep repeating this, but I, I feel obliged to say that because we don't seem to understand that sufficiently. And so the, the, you're right that these statues become symbols whereby we just think that somehow we're repudiating the evils of the past, but don't realize that we're also destroying our own heritage. On what basis are we going to assert the dignity of all human beings if it's not from the Christian and biblical view that everybody is a child of God? It becomes very, very difficult if you think about this. On what basis do we respect other human beings and not impose our wills on them? 
I think that the internal debate that we have to have is that and recognize that there are elements in our culture that are extremely important. And when we begin to tear down what would in the past have been considered the high points, the, the most admirable people in our past, and even people like Lincoln now are coming in for, for criticism, because he too was not a perfect human being. We start to tear that down. Who is going to be able to stand up in that kind of society? Dr. Royal, you're also the author of 1492 and All That, about which we're speaking today, along with Columbus and the Monuments. I think some people look at these questions and say, is Columbus really worth defending? Certainly he wasn't perfect. We know a lot about the sins and injustices that some of his men committed. He's not a canonized saint. Is it really important for Catholics to be wading into these debates and these conversations and expending our cultural capital defending Columbus? Is this the right battle for us to be focused on? Well, look, if some people want to take that point of view, it's a free country. You can you can take whatever point of view you want to take about him. I think it's important to defend him because he himself had a sense, we have very strong documentation about this, that one of the things he was, he was involved in was a historical call from God himself to preach the gospel to all nations. He believed that before Christ could come again, before the second coming could happen. Now, this is, is a little naive on his part, but... You know, it was a perspective that didn't have a, a sense of the globe the way we do. He believed that before Christ could come again, the gospel had to be preached to all nations, and that Jerusalem had to be recovered for Christianity from the Muslim conquest that had occurred centuries earlier. Now, take whatever point of view you want about that that you want. I think it's important for Catholics to recognize that there was a religious impulse behind his voyages, just as there was a religious impulse behind the Puritans coming pilgrims coming to North America. If we lose the perspective that, in fact, evangelization matters, what we're in in effect saying is that Christianity brings nothing good to the world. Now, you you and I know quite well that all Christians, ourselves included, are imperfect, and we profess one thing, we don't quite live up to what we, we profess. That's just the nature of what Christianity is for. It's made for sinners. God came to save sinners. But unless we keep clear in our minds that historically the faith has had to grow from its small beginnings in Palestine, we, we, you know, we learn about how it moved through the Roman Empire and then took over much of Europe and, and Dark Ages and then the recoveries of a great flowering in the Middle Ages and the Counter-Reformation. We also, I think, have to value what happened in the fact that Christianity came to these shores, that it made a difference that we don't have human sacrifice in Mexico any longer, that we seek, however imperfectly, to respect one another, all of us, of whatever religious state, of whatever racial background or ethnic background. That is an important thing in the public square. But I think also for Catholics as such, it's important for us to recognize that this was part of at least someone's view of how evangelization ought to be carried out to carry the gospel. And we need to continue to do that right now. And I think part of the trouble is we're... We've been intimidated, and we're not willing to step forward and say, yes, Christianity makes a difference in this world, and it makes a difference eternally. And we stand forward, and we say that we try to bring Christ's revelation to all people, and that that's a good thing. I think if Christians believe that, you know, you can take a more or less defense of Columbus, but you can't entirely dismiss him, because he's part of our evangelizing history. 
what you're alluding to is having a Christian vision of history, and that's not particularly popular in some quarters, but it seems essential for thinking correctly about some of these issues that we're confronted with in the public discourse. Now, most great historical figures have done or said something that today we would consider perhaps sinful, immoral, disrespectful, etc. What are the criteria that we should use to evaluate statues, historical figures, you know, new historical knowledge comes to light, you know, whether it's Jefferson and his treatment of slaves or Columbus and his men, etc., etc. You know, we know that many Confederate monuments were put up to show dominion over an area in the era of Jim Crow. Certainly Christians in the church itself has rechristened pagan temples, toppled monuments. No one shed any tears when in 1989 statues of Lenin fell down. So certainly this is not inappropriate in every kind. We don't have to leave every statue that's ever been erected up. So what are the criteria that we should think about and use as we look at some of these figures and some of these monuments? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Jefferson, because I think he's a, he's a prime example. If you go into the Jefferson Memorial here in Washington, D.C., and I've done it many times, there are a number of quotations from Jefferson inside that, that sort of Greek temple. It's a round Greek temple-like thing that, that um, was erected to him. And he speaks of God in almost every one of those quotations. He talks about, you know, I have sworn eternal enmity against anything that enslaves the mind of man, that God himself has endowed us with our rights. We have to recognize what is good in great historical figures. If Jefferson had only been a slave owner, well, of course, no one would ever honor him. And no one has ever thought of honoring him because he was a slave owner. But he is honored because of the great things he did for our country as, as such. And the same is true of Washington. Washington was an extremely virtuous man in his life. He was regarded as, as a man who sought at, at every turn to be virtuous. And like many of the people at that time, had a blind spot about slavery and about the, uh, the kind of economic system that existed that, that depended on that kind of slavery. So look, we can criticize those, those persons. But again, if we're going to set up a, a system of purity, well, then probably no one is ever going to be honored. None, no one now alive or no one alive in the past. But if what we want to do instead is recognize that even though all of us are sinful, there are things that some of us do that are so extraordinarily worth remembering. Founding the United States was worth remembering. Crossing the Atlantic was worth remembering. Being an apostle who moved out from the small province of the Roman Empire, Palestine, into the great Roman Empire and brought Christianity to, to an ancient world, which was brutal. This is worth remembering. This is why we remember the saints. And so in a sense, you know, even our saints may have been less than, than perfect, but we remember them. And I think that in the secular sphere, we look and, and make these arguments that we remember certain people, not because of the fact that they were flawed. We already know they're going to be flawed. But we look at them for, for the kind of extraordinary things that they may have done. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Einstein was you know, cruel to his wife or something, but he was a genius when it came to mathematics, and we can put up a statue to him. So I can't establish actual criteria, if you want to use that term, but I can at least point toward what I would like to see us do, which is a saner and, and calmer way of thinking about all of history, not just Columbus, but all of human history, because all of human history is going to be dark and light, and we want to find those lights and celebrate them. On a practical level, I think folks are sitting around the water cooler having debates about Columbus or statues or monuments, and it's amazing how much of the oxygen can get sucked out of the discourse by things that seem somewhat symbolic but have deeper implications, as we've been alluding to. I think some people, from the standpoint of the Church's evangelical mission, say, well, you know, there are all sorts of people, whether Native American, whether whites, 
whoever have been filled with these historical perspectives are operating from these historical premises and assumptions and worldviews. And for us to be defending Columbus actually creates a stumbling block to them receiving the gospel and a barrier to even be listened to when they're operating from these alternative factual premises, we'll call them. On that level, on that practical level of evangelization, how do we overcome that challenge? Is that so many have embraced the worldview that's been presented to them in popular culture about the coming of Christ, the coming of Western civilization to the new world? Is it creating a stumbling block, or what do we need to do in that regard to both be servants of historical truth, but also remain in our principal role as evangelizers and, and heralds of the gospel? Well, it takes a great deal of prudence. It's not only over Columbus that it's hard to get a word in edgewise for the gospel these days, as we know quite well. So in most circumstances, I don't think that you know, Columbus is probably the first name that I would mention in terms of evangelizing the New World, but it wouldn't be the last one either. I think I would want to in, in the mix somewhere. We may have to wait for a better moment, but look, the, the beginning of this always is to be prudent about who you're speaking to. You don't just kind of jump in and defend everything that ever happened in Christian history, because it's a fruitless task and it does put people off. I myself rarely will—if people know that I'm a Catholic who's involved in public Catholicism and they come to me and ask me about something, that's usually when I begin to speak. I have a lot of opportunities, of course, to speak in public and to write and to do television and radio and whatnot. But, you know, just in private, you know, you're in a very different circumstance in those places. And I think that you begin by modeling the faith yourself, by being kind to other people, being truthful, and being considerate. And um, if people want to engage in conversations about various things, you know, what, what about Charles Darwin? What about Christopher Columbus? I mean, these are, are questions that Catholics should be prepared to, to address if they can. But I, too, I'm a little worried that sometimes people get caught up into the political passions of the moment. That can actually be counterproductive. So if you're going to engage in this argument, and believe me, I, during 1992, I, I did a lot of speaking on college campuses and many other places. And these are hard arguments to make, and you better know your stuff, number one, but you also want to be... I want to be fair to everybody involved. There, there are difficulties in many different directions in, 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 uh, in history. And so you, you're aware of what humanity is, and it's out of a certain sense of humanity, or a Christian sense of the human person, that you engage another person. You don't bludgeon them with the idea that, well, no, no, Columbus had good, good things. You know, you, you engage another human being, and that's exactly what our Lord did, too. I mean, he spoke to sinners, he spoke to people who were aspiring to be different than, than they were, and he knew how to speak to each one. He, he didn't just have a rote way of evangelizing for every person who came to him. But, you know, I'm with you. I know it's a very difficult process these days, and the political passions don't make it any easier. Dr. Royal, just one final question. Pope Leo XIII wrote an encyclical about Columbus uh, well over a century ago. How does that encyclical hold up today? Is that something in a resource that you would recommend Catholics go read and consider in these discussions? Yeah, yeah. I think that we ought to know our own history. And look, no pope would write that exactly the same way today, because in um, the end, at the end of the 19th century, it was a lot easier to say that um, the European explorations and, and the marvelous ways that we now have countries that were influenced by Europe 
not only here in the Americas, but New Zealand, Australia, you know, the, the expansion of what you could kind of call the Christian culture in a broad sense. But that was a great thing, and that, that Columbus is one of the people who made this, uh, this possible. I don't, you know, I often say Vasco da Gama actually did get to the Indies. He, he sailed for Portugal, and he sailed down around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa. But that was to a part of the world that people had always known in the past, and there had been trading going on with there. 1492 is the beginning of something quite different. And since we all now pride ourselves in living in a globalized society, I think it's um, only just to recognize the single figure who uh, was able to do that. I think they were they were able to say it better at the end of the 19th century than we are now at the beginning of the 21st. But the day may be coming when the when the wheel turns a little bit and we'll get uh, a calmer and a fairer appraisal of what he actually did. Dr. Royal, we're grateful that you've joined us today on The Bridge Builder. Dr. Robert Royal is the founder and president of the Faith at Reason Institute in Washington, D.C., and editor-in-chief of The Catholic Thing. He is the author of 1492 and All That, which will be revised, expanded, and re-released uh, this September. Am I right about that, Dr. Royal? Right, but it's got a new title. It's now called Columbus and the Crisis of the West. And who's the publisher? Uh, it's uh, a Sophia Institute Press. Wonderful. We'll look for that very fine title and uh, this coming September. And uh, thanks for being on the show today, Dr. Royal. It's been a great conversation. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in today's mailbag? Yeah, so one of our listeners emailed us sharing that her neighbors, families, and co-workers, really everyone she speaks with, is just getting so worked up and even angry over the presidential election. She simply asked, what can I do as a Catholic to help bring some calm to these conversations, or should I just be keeping quiet? Well, the first thing is to take the Civilize It pledge. Go to civilizeit.org, a great resource from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and a pledge that you can take to help civilize the debate. And let's go back to the term civility. That has a connotation of friendship talks about the city and life in the city together. And life in the city together, according to the ancient Greeks and Romans, was a, a life of friendship and that politics and the pursuit of the common good had to be rooted in friendship. And we need to think about that term civility and its roots and that word chivitas or the city and think about politics as an act of friendship. We're not always going to agree. I don't always agree with my wife, in fact, on particular matters, and that's okay. Ideas are refined in the crucible of debate, and certainly people care passionately about important issues and these questions, but we also have to recognize and presume goodwill of our friends, our neighbors, and our families, and approach it from that perspective of civility, reason, and friendship. And again, we can disagree, that's okay, but civilizing it is important. It's not just a matter of what we say in the public arena, but it's also a matter of how we say it. Ultimately, all of our actions, including our political discourse, should have an eye toward evangelization. We should model as Christians virtues. We should model as Christians the virtues of civility, of rational discourse, of civic friendship. 
and uh, that can be a mode of evangelization. So remember, when you're getting animated about politics and people know that you are a follower of Christ, are you being a herald of the gospel? Are you being a good witness for how Christians should behave in the public arena? And that's why the Civilize It Pledge at civilizeit.org is a great resource to go and think about your role in fostering a healthy public discourse. Begin to form your conscience so that you're grounded in truth and not swayed by the emotions that so often get tied up in these conversations. Again, we suggest reading the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops' Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship for the Right Principles and Perspectives that you should be bringing to your voting choices. But again, thinking about fostering rational discourse and recognizing that politics is that common conversation about how we order our lives together. And not just in the presidential election, but all the way down the ballot as well. Again, for more resources, visit civilizeit.org or mncatholic.org slash election. Great. Thanks, Jason. And before we go, we just want to leave our listeners with some other practical takeaways. How can they start laying the bricks to build the bridge between faith and politics? There's still time to create a parish town hall event in your parish. If you are a member of a social concerns committee, a respect life committee, if you're a pastor or priest listening in, you can host a town hall forum for candidates and local legislative races. We're encouraging parishes to hold candidate forums that feature the state legislative candidates, the state house and the state senate, all of which will be up for election this year. This is a perfectly legitimate voter information exercise that one as a parish can engage in. Great way to inform the voters and the people in the pew as they make choices about all those races besides the presidential election that have a real strong impact on how we live our lives. People at the state house and state senate make very important decisions. Oftentimes people don't know who represents them. The first step in good public policy is forming relationships and getting to know your state officials and hosting a candidate town hall where you can hear how different candidates are addressing issues of concern to the Catholic community is a great opportunity to inform your vote ahead of the election. So for resources and a how-to kit to put such an event together, visit us at mncatholic.org slash townhall. Again, mncatholic.org slash townhall for a toolkit for your parish to put together a voter information event approved by your bishop ahead of the election. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in today to the Bridge Builder Program. I'm Jason Adkins of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. And for Kit Cross, thanks for listening and have a great day.